Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as we take time this morning to dive into this study of the great book that we began to introduce last week. And of course, at the beginning of this book, as, or at the beginning of this letter, as with every letter in the New Testament, you have a greeting, a common greeting. And some people would find it strange that anyone would take their time to really think very deeply about a greeting, about a, a salutation, sort of a common convention of letters throughout all time. Every society, every place has its own conventions. And we would recognize it's strange if in 2,000 years someone picked up one of our letters and they read, you know, Dear Mr. Johnson... And they would say, well, you know, by saying dear, the writer meant that this person was deeply cherished among their most prized individuals in their lives. And by mister, which comes from the word master, they had some level of allegiance and obedience, you know, or whatever. And then, you know, you kind of go on about, you know, the, the body of the letter, you know, concerning the delinquency of my payment or whatever it might be. And they... They, they would find it strange if you tried to pick apart the pieces of those conventional greetings, right? Some people would say the same thing even about old letters like Romans. It is a letter. It has the common greeting format that you find in most letters, you know, person X to person Y and then a greeting. And that is true that all letters sort of follow that same format and it's true that you have even in Romans, as you have in all of Paul's letters, those same essential formats. But there is something distinctly different about Paul's letter that you find from any other letter in the uh, ancient world or any other letters in the ancient world, and even, even distinct sometimes even from his other letters, because what Paul does here is not what we would call standard convention, Paul does indeed provide his name, the sender. He does indeed provide the name of the recipients. He does indeed provide a greeting. But as you look at this, each part of the greeting is greatly expanded. The sender's name is expanded. The recipient's name is expanded. Even the greeting is expanded from anything that you would normally see in a letter. So that even a first century reader would have would have taken this and unrolled the scroll. And as they encountered the opening words of this letter, they too would have been struck by the unusually rich language that the Apostle Paul has penned here. It would have struck them as, we might say, unconventional in the way that he's writing this. And there's a purpose for that. There's a reason why Paul does that in all of his books. There's a reason why he does that in this book in particular. There's a reason why this, this book, of, apart from all of Paul's letters, has the lengthiest and richest language of any New Testament letter in terms of its overall salutation. There's a reason why. And what we find here, I believe, just like with every other salutation of the Apostle Paul, is is the apostle taking the most essential elements of what he wants to say throughout the entire book. And he's really encapsulating that for us and for the original readers. He's really trying to boil all of this down in the 
finest form that he can and put it all into this opening remarks in order to grab our attention, in order to wake us up and get us to to, uh, pay heed to what he has to say. In fact, you, you can sort of take that as a rule. Anytime you open up a New Testament book, with the exception of maybe Galatians, uh, you could find encapsulated in those opening salutary remarks something of the content, something of the emphasis, something of the main points of the book. This is for us what Paul essentially wants us to understand, all boiled down for us here. This is what he says in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe what Paul is really putting in here is something of a plea, something of an appeal to you and to, uh, to, to, to me and to all the readers of this letter to consider carefully the weight of what he's about to say. It's really his way of calling our attention and grabbing our minds, if you will, and trying to frame both the weightiness and the significance of everything he's about to say in this letter so that we give our attention, so that we give our hearts, so that we give our lives to it. He wants to grab us. And he wants to do it really three ways. First of all, he wants to do it by the designation that he gives to himself. Paul's personal designation in this letter is where he begins. He, he of course, begins with his name, but then immediately applies a threefold label to himself. He, first of all, calls himself a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, I know in modern, uh, modern Bible translations have attempted to domesticate that term. Uh, they've attempted to sort of take some of the edge on it, uh, off of it by translating it servant. But first century readers wouldn't have seen it as domesticated. They would have read it in its plainest sense. They would have heard Paul basically categorizing himself among the class of slaves. Now, there's some evidence that in some places that wouldn't have been so bad. If you're in the Middle East, for example, if you're in a Palestinian context, some people do refer to themselves in ancient letters as slaves of their emperor or slaves of their king. And everyone sort of, uh, sort of saw themselves, if you will, in that class or that category to some degree. But that was certainly not the case for the people to whom Paul's writing. The people who are right at the heart, not of Eastern culture, but of Western culture. They're right at the heart of the main city, the capital city of the Roman Empire, the ancient city of Rome, where uh, where everyone was extremely concerned about status, about social standing. 
In fact, there have been a number of studies that have been done over the last 20 years that are all dedicated specifically to that aspect of first century society, the aspect of of their sense of social standing. And every one of them have come to the same conclusion that it was extremely important in major Roman cities that people would carve out and people would establish very clearly to those around them where they fell in either one of three categories. They were most proudly the ones who were known as Roman citizens. This was a badge of honor. This was something that people would pay large sums of money in order to achieve. It came with all kinds of rights and privileges and protections, but it came with a certain amount of status with it. Along with that would be what is commonly just known as free men. Uh, That obviously what it states, people who are not slaves, people who are not free, but aren't quite citizens of Rome. They are independent people, if you will. And then, of course, the third category would have been the slaves. And no matter where you look in the old, uh, in the old, uh, excuse me, ancient world, in the ancient documents, you see this constant concern and constant jockeying for people to class and categorize themselves, particularly out of that category of slavery. They wanted to define, and they were very proud of the fact that they could not be known, could not be referred to as anyone's slave. So this term certainly had no domestication on the part of Paul's readers. In just about every situation, it would have carried a negative connotation. But it's exactly that that frames the strength of what Paul has to say here. He is a slave to Jesus. You are a slave to Jesus. Just... Everyone who calls himself a Christian is a slave within the household of Christ. In fact, down in verse 6, Paul will tell them, as he would tell you, that you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And this carries obvious connotations. It carries obvious connotations in terms of the way that you view your life, in terms of the way that you view your your uh, duties, your time, your resources, everything. Because everyone understands that slavery is not a nine-to-five job. Everyone understands that slavery isn't something that you clock in and you clock out. You don't take nights and weekends off from being a slave. As Jesus said in, his, uh, in, in the Gospels, you know, someone doesn't come in from the field and then you know, tell their slave, hey, sit down and let me wash your feet and serve you some food. No, they sit down and they tell their slave, would you serve my food and take care of my needs? And then after it's all said and done, the slave says, what? Look, I'm just an unprofitable servant because all I did was what I'm supposed to do. So there are no accolades for the after hours work. There are no accolades for the extra time put in here and there on the weekends. There are no accolades for the duties and the services and all the stuff that you do in any way in which you serve. You simply understand that you're not your own. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying to them, look, I'm writing to you as someone who is not my own. I'm not writing to you to represent myself. I'm not writing to you to advocate for myself. Because I'm a slave. And a slave does his master's will. 
Not only that, Paul adds a second sort of label to himself. He calls himself an apostle. Simply put, he has this special role within the church that was designated out for certain men known as apostles who were what we would call foundational leaders. They were appointed by Christ to lay foundations. They were appointed by Christ to break the ground, if you will, on the construction of the church. And just like any foundation, just like any crew that's going to break ground, you know, they're, they're typically going to come in and do their work. They're going to lay their foundation and they're not going to turn around and lay more foundation and more foundation and more foundation. They are by definition, if they're foundational, they are temporary. They, they serve their purpose. They pass off the scene. And we're clearly told, even in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, look, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, implying that there was a period of time where Christ was present on the earth, laying the foundation, implying there was a time when the apostles were present on the earth, laying the foundation, implying there was a time when the prophets were on the earth, laying the foundation, but that time has passed. These were foundational roles. And now you and I and every believer throughout all the centuries have been building on that foundation. And really to ensure that understanding the Bible has specifically laid out requirements and prerequisites of being an apostle that made it necessary for this to be a temporary role. First of all, to be an apostle, you are, you are to have had to see the resurrected Christ in bodily form. You find that when they talk about apostles, Paul talks about his own apostleship. They talk about adding apostles in the book of Acts. There's reference made to the fact that this person had to have seen the bodily resurrected Christ. In other words, you can't have seen Christ in your heart, your mind, have some sort of emotional or ethereal experience. This had to be a physical experience of seeing Christ. Required to have seen his resurrected body. Secondly, they had to have personally been appointed by Christ. That's the whole idea behind an apostle. It literally means someone sent out. And when you have that idea of sending someone, there's obviously implied a sender. And so the, the whole concept of an apostle is someone who has been sent. And so each apostle would have had a story about how they had been personally selected by Christ, personally appointed by Christ. And they would turn to that story. We have stories in the Gospels about that. Paul tells his own story about his own personal calling. So you have to have seen the resurrected Christ. You have to have been personally appointed. And then thirdly, you had to have validating signs. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. How his own apostleship had been validated by what he called signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, you wouldn't want someone just to stand up and, and sort of uh, claim or, or make a claim to being a spokesman for God. And so in order to legitimate those people who would speak authoritatively and would speak definitively within the church, uh, speak definitively for God, he gave them signs. Signs which were, by definition, exclusive to them. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a sign. 
You couldn't point to it anymore if everyone was doing it and say, it points to me as an apostle. By definition, the signs had to be exclusive. And as a matter of fact, that's what you see whenever you open up the book of Acts. And what you read is that the, 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 the early church was experiencing signs and wonders and miracles. And Luke is very specific to point out that it was by the hand of the apostles. In other words, this wasn't general miracles taking place all over the place. He was telling us again and again and again that miracles were taking place, but they were taking place by that select few that God had appointed. And so Paul can point to this and say, look, my apostleship has now been confirmed by these signs. And so for all these reasons, we understand that these apostles are limited. They've been, they, they, the boundary has been set in the early church as they laid the foundation of the church. And they spoke definitively and with unique authority within the matters of the church. And Paul calls attention to this with this label of himself as one of these apostles. Thirdly, Paul tells us that he was set apart for the gospel of God. He was set apart. This is his personal testimony. He refers to it a couple of times throughout his writings, sort of framing it in the same vain as an Old Testament prophet, a prophet like Jeremiah, who says in chapter one of Jeremiah before, or God says to Jeremiah, I should say, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So Paul picks up on that same sense when he tells, even in Galatians, he uses the very same kind of language. He says, when When God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me by His grace. So he uses that same language when Paul says, look, I I didn't choose to, I didn't wake up one day and decide, hey, I'm going to preach and I'm going to write about the gospel. He didn't wake up one day and just say, hey, this is just something that's interesting for me to do, or I don't have anything better to do, or I don't really feel gifted to do anything else. I'm just going to go and do this. That's not the way Paul viewed his ministry, and more importantly, it's not the way he wanted them to view it. It's not the way he wanted them to receive him. The reason he's sharing this with them is because he wanted them to understand that God had elected him before he ever made any choice, in fact, before he was even conceived in the womb. God had appointed, God had selected, God had elected, whatever language you want to use, God had chosen him and set him apart for the sake of the gospel. And all that comes with a certain amount of weight, because if this is the hand of God, if this is the doing of God, then obviously you are under some level of obligation. You would want to lend your ear to such a person, right? Paul's not here representing himself. He's a slave of God. Paul's not here as just some, you know, self-proclaimed local yokel. He has been confirmed as an apostle. And Paul's not even here by his own volition. It's not something he's standing to share with you and I or even the original readers. It's not something he's saying from his own representation. He's saying this as someone who has been elected by God. What he's saying is, I've been called out by God. I've been set apart for God. And in light of that fact, you should deeply consider 
you should deeply consider what's about to come. He doesn't just leave it there, though. He goes on from the typical greeting or in the typical greeting and expands even more, outlining not just the designation for himself, but really the validation of his gospel that he's setting in front of them. And in doing that, really drawing their attention to, as he applied three labels to himself, we could say four factors here when it comes to this gospel that makes or va- uh, makes it valid or validates it or ought to validate it in their minds. First and most importantly, he speaks to its history. He speaks to its history. It was, as he says in verse 2, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, this isn't something recently invented or dreamed up. Paul will repeatedly emphasize that the gospel that he now preaches is simply the extension of the old message of the Old Testament. In fact, this serves really to draw our attention to the fact that the book of Romans, along with the book of Hebrews, are some of the greatest expositions of the Old Testament that you will ever find anywhere. And certainly in the New Testament, they, those two books are set apart from every other New Testament book in the concentration of New Testament references. You will find more references, excuse me, Old Testament references. You'll find more Old Testament references in the book of Romans than any other New Testament book. And that's not just a factor of its length, because on a chapter-by-chapter basis, on balance... It makes more references to the Old Testament than any other New Testament book. Uh, any other New Testament book. going to get my Old Testament, New Testament designations here. Paul's saying, look, what I'm preaching to you, what I'm about to give to you, is, is something that isn't necessarily new. It isn't something that came from me recently. It's not something I dreamt up. It has been grounded. It has a rich history long before me or any of the other apostles or even Christ himself. It was promised in the Old Testament. And he'll repeatedly emphasize this as we go through the book of Romans. Even if at times Paul refers to what he's preaching as a mystery. Suggesting that when you open up the Old Testament, that there's something hidden in relation to his preaching and his gospel. And he calls the, some aspects of the gospel a mystery, meaning that there were certain aspects that couldn't be known or had not been known or weren't fully unfolded until New Testament times. And yet, within the context of that, Paul will tell us over and over and over again that the gospel itself, or we might say the essential core of the gospel, was plainly there. So much so that there's a reasonable expectation on the part of Christ, on the part of Paul, on the part of all New Testament writers. There's a reasonable expectation that when you open up the Old Testament, you would see it. And this is what has been called their apologetic concern. The fact that they are... They're they're reading the Old Testament or they're they're showing the Old Testament to us not as something that could only be understood if they told it to us, but something that ought to be understood by everyone who read it. In other words, in Paul's mind, there is a compelling message that arises out of the Old Testament itself and speaks to us 
about the fundamentals of what we would call the centrality of faith or what we would call the role of the law or even what we would talk about in terms of the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of salvation and all those things that Paul will lay out for us over and over and over again as we get into this vast book and he's going to show us how all of this fits together especially as you read the Old Testament and and you notice that that large amounts to it are given to the emphasis on things like the law or on things like circumcision or on things like the salvation of the Jews. But Paul will repeatedly point out that what was beginning to happen in his day among the Gentiles and apart from the law and apart from circumcision were clearly promised in the Old Testament. I mean, even last week, you remember we talked about this. How Paul, not only here in the second verse of the book, makes this point very strongly, but in the second to the last verse of the book. It's the way he chooses to close out his letter. It's the way he chooses to bracket the whole message. He says there in Romans 16, verse 26, that this gospel has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations. So it's the first thing he wants to know. Wants us to know. It's the last thing he wants us to know. And it's the thing he will continually emphasize to us over and over and over again as a way of validating his message, as a way of confirming that what we're reading from him, what we're reading in the New Testament, is the meaning of all the Bible, meaning the old and the new. Not only that, Paul secondly labels or secondly gives us this factor of his gospel in terms not only of its history, but of its focus. This is the second validating thing about Paul's gospel. It was clearly focused on God's son. Clearly focused on God's son. He is at the core, as he always is. For every church, for every Christian, for every gospel presentation. And this is the way Paul describes it in verse 3. That this gospel was concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. This is clearly the core Of what Paul wants to say in his greeting. Because quite frankly it's just what he gives the most space to. It's what he gives the most development to. And so it's really at the core of of what he's trying to preview for us. This what we might call this contrast. Or maybe this heightening that takes place. Because on the one hand. He tells us that this was a gospel concerning Jesus Christ. Who was descended From David, according to the flesh. On the other hand, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. That reference, by the way, to the first part of that, the descendancy from David, naturally flows out of Paul's whole statement about the Old Testament. This would have been... Of course, a backbone to the Old Testament, what's sometimes called the Davidic covenant. This notion uh, in 2 
Samuel 7, this promise, I should say, that God made to David that he would plant or he would place someone on David's throne forever. That at some point in the future, God was going to raise up a promised seed to David, a physical descendant of David, and that he would take up the rule and the reign of David, and he would reign forever. And this was the promise that repeatedly, as you go through the Old Testament, the prophets keep going back to, keep going back to. In fact, if you want to know how to read the Bible, if you want to know how to read the Old Testament, read it in that light. If you want to, if you want to know how to understand the prophets when you're reading the Old Testament and you don't really always see all this historical stuff and understand all these wars and these armies, read it looking for the promise of the Davidic Savior, the Davidic King, I should say. Because over and over and over again, the prophets keep pointing back to the hope of this coming king. He would be the one who would not only reign on David's throne, but he would be the one who we're told would establish Israel within their land and among their enemies. And this was the aspect that they would talk about again and again and again. This coming root of Jesse, this coming promised anointed one. In fact, that is what is behind the common designation of Messiah, which is essentially a reference to the anointing of this coming king. And that, of course, comes into the Greek language as Christos, as Christ, the anointed one, the anointed Davidic king. And so in referring to these Old Testament promises, it's just natural that Paul would draw from that One of the key promises that were there in the Old Testament, which is this Davidic promise. But it's interesting, he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just say that, that that he was born or he was, uh, that the gospel was according to this Davidic promise. In fact, he's, he's saying here that Jesus Christ came, a descendant of David according to the flesh, the promised fulfillment of David according to the flesh, but according to the spirit of holiness, he was what? He was the son of God. According to the flesh, he's the descendant of David. According to the spirit of holiness, he's the son of God. People aren't quite sure there, as Paul uses that phrase, the spirit of holiness, What he's referring to, is he referring to the Holy Spirit or is he referring to the Spirit in the sense of a quality or a sense of holiness? And the reason people ask that question is because nowhere else does Paul ever refer to the Holy Spirit as, quote, the Spirit of holiness. This would be the only place that would ever happen. Plus, you have the idea that, as Paul's talking here in the context of the resurrection, it's always attributed to the power of the Father, never to the power of the Holy Spirit. So the idea, many suggest, that what Paul is saying here, the idea would be that it was one of the effects of the resurrection, that it declared Jesus to be holy. It had a quality about it, the resurrection. It had a sense about it. That it set him apart as holy in a way 
that even the Davidic covenant could not. There was, a, there was an effect of the resurrection. There was an effect of that event which heightened even something as grand as the very backbone of the Old Testament. There was, in other words, an advancement by the New Testament proclamation of the gospel. So when Paul says that he is preaching what was simply promised in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that that is simply all it is. It is certainly in line with that, but when you come to the New Testament, there is an expansion or there is a heightening of that, and it's found, he would say, primarily in the resurrection. And as a part of that, people would even note the contrast that Paul makes here between the descent of David according to the flesh, which if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that that word has loads of meaning behind it. Paul normally uses the word flesh in a negative connotation. Or if not in a negative connotation, we would say at least in a connotation of weakness. Certainly in the book of Romans, most of the time he uses the word flesh, it connotes something that's sinful. But at other times he uses it to simply talk about what is weak. For example, over in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, we looked at this Not too long ago when we were studying the book of Corinthians. He says there, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's that's an ironic thing for Paul to say in the middle of 1 Corinthians when he's really written to that point 49 verses trying to argue that we will inherit the kingdom of God in fleshly bodies. So how does he turn around and say flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God? Because he's using it in the Pauline sense of the weakness of our human flesh. The frailty of our human flesh. In other words, his argument there in 1 Corinthians 15 is that if we're going to inherit the kingdom of God, our bodies have to be transformed, as he goes on to say in verses 51-52, in power. There has to be a transformation of these human bodies. But in their normal fleshly way, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So the contrast you find in Apostle Paul very often is this. The contrast between flesh, that is weakness, and power. Which seems to be exactly what we find right here. That there's this heightening because not only is he simply the descendant of David according to human flesh. But he's declared to be the son of God in what? In power. According to the spirit of holiness. He's, he, he is set apart in power. He's set apart. He's declared. Some people would even point out that word is never translated declared anywhere else. It's always translated appointed. Translators of the New Testament have avoided that because they don't want to have any notion of what's sometimes called adoptionism, that somehow Christ wasn't God's son before, but he was God's son after the resurrection. That's not a New Testament doctrine. That is a heretical teaching. But there's no doubt that in a, in a very clear way, the resurrection changed something. That Christ went from what we would call a humble estate to an exalted estate. With the resurrection. And not only Christ. Paul is telling us that the gospel. 
the gospel was heightened. The gospel was validated. The gospel that centers on his son was fundamentally heightened from something of mere promise in the Old Testament of maybe a Davidic covenant to now the validation and the declaration of God's Son in power, set apart from all humanity and every other messianic pretender. I mean, this is really nothing other than what we read in Philippians 2, isn't it? That we are to take the mind of Christ who didn't regard equality with God as something to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking what? The form of a servant. He took the form of a bondservant and, and demonstrated that servanthood, that slavery, even unto death. So that now God has done what? Highly exalted him. And given him a name that's above every name. Folks, that's the resurrection. That's the resurrection. And what Paul's telling us here is that the resurrection is so central to our gospel preaching. It is so indispensable to what we have to say as believers. Because if all we have is some Old Testament Davidic promise, it is lacking something of the power that God intended the gospel to have. And so there's a progression, if you will, in what we would call salvation history. There's a progression in the gospel proclamation that goes from that Old Testament promise and all those things that were beginning to be revealed until the New Testament manifestation of the Son and the eventual exaltation and proclamation of Christ in power when He is declared to be. He's not made the Son of God, but He's certainly declared to be the Son of God in a powerful, a unique, we would say in a holy way. He is set apart in a spirit or in a sense of holiness by this resurrection. And then Paul caps all of this off with the ultimate combination of all those things when he simply calls or identifies him at the end of verse 4 as Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what that is? That is the bringing together of everything he just said. It is obviously Jesus, the very focal point of all this, who is on one hand... The Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all those Old Testament Davidic promises of a coming coming anointed one. But he's not just the Christ, he's what? He's the Lord. He's the exalted one. He's the one who in, in all power and all glory has been set apart by the resurrection. People have suggested that this has just become some sort of formality for Paul, this designation of Jesus Christ. In fact, they have suggested that Paul uses it something like a formal name, like we would have a person's given name and their family name, and it just sort of became a matter of course for the Apostle Paul to refer to Jesus no longer simply as Jesus, but Jesus Christ. But that really doesn't stand up under scrutiny. Certainly in a place like this, when it is appended to such rich theological development, 
And it's clear that Paul has embedded these words, or I should say encapsulated in these words, what he's just unfolded for us in the previous two verses. But it's not even clear, uh, that wouldn't even stand up, I should say, under scrutiny. If you just went and examined how Paul refers to Jesus in all of his letters. I mean, some places it is indeed Jesus Christ, our Lord, but other places it's Christ Jesus, our Lord. In fact, that's probably his his uh, preferred uh, 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 statement. He calls him Christ Jesus more than he calls him Jesus Christ. And, and yet the custom would never have allowed in their day, just like it wouldn't allow in our day, for you to just you know, jumble up someone's family name and their given name and their title so that they might be Jones, Mr. You know, John or whatever. There was always a convention of giving someone's a given name and their family name, or family name and their given name. And yet Paul doesn't follow the same format. Sometimes it's Jesus Christ our Lord. Sometimes it's Christ Jesus our Lord. Sometimes it's our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's our Lord Christ. Sometimes it's our Lord Jesus. Sometimes it's Jesus as Lord. Sometimes it's Jesus is Lord. And on and on and on again, Paul is constantly using these phrases Throughout all of his letters, in fact, someone counted up 350, or I should say more than 350, references to this combination of, of, of terms in Paul's 13 letters. 350 references. I mean, even here in the first few verses, you can see it over and over again. Jesus Christ, he says there in verse uh, uh, 4, Jesus, uh, ver- Jesus Christ in verse 6, Jesus Christ down in verse 7. It's just always in there, and it's not just a formal name. It is for Paul embedded with theology, and what it speaks to is the centrality of Christ, the centrality of his Messiahship, and the centrality of his Lordship in everything that Paul has to say. He never, I believe, he never puts it in there as a throwaway phrase. People would say, well, then why doesn't he write more about it? If this is so central and core to what he has to say. Well, the reason he doesn't write about it is because these things were not disputed in his churches. In other words, when Paul went in to preach the gospel somewhere, he laid this foundation and people accepted this teaching. And it was never something he had to spend extensive time Defending. In fact, uh, linguists would call this the law, uh, uh, what do they call it? The inverse, law of inversion, I should say. Or, or sometimes they would f- refer to it as the slenderness of a reference. Whenever you have what they call a slender reference, meaning that, that the writer doesn't feel the need to give a lot of explanation or a lot of expansion to something, it implies that the readers simply accepted what was said. So that we can understand that by all of these 350 plus references, what we're having built by the Apostle Paul is the centrality of the Lordship of Christ, of the Messiahship of Christ, to his entire theology. And although he never wrote a specific treatise about it, it literally is peppered throughout everything that he says and everything that he thinks. This is the gospel about his son. This is the gospel about God's son. And he's Jesus, the Christ, our Lord. 
Paul not only gives us the gospel in terms of its history, not only in terms of its focus, but I want you to see also in terms of its purpose. This too is a validating element for the Apostle Paul in verse 5. It's purpose that through Jesus Christ, through whom he says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Paul says, look, me and the other apostles, we have received grace and our calling to apostleship to bring about obedience to everyone to whom we preach. Grace probably here not referring to his grace of salvation, but his grace of ministry, which Paul often referred to. Even in chapter 15, he'll say in verse 15, at the end of that verse, grace was given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus. He says in Ephesians 3, he really expands on that idea. And even for you and I, he would tell us that anything that we do for Christ, any way in which we serve within the ministry of the gospel, any way in which we serve within the church, we ought to be seeing it as something that's undeserved. You go out there and you pour out your life and you pour out your time and you pour out your resources to serve Christ and you ought to be stepping back and saying that was grace. He says it in Romans 12, verse 16, that we, having gifts that differ according to the grace that was given to us. And so God ministers a gift to you. God equips you with something with which to serve Him. And you need to understand that something is simply grace. And this is the way Paul looked at his ministry. God has given me, He's given the other apostles, this grace and this calling to do what? To go out and to call everyone who hears us to obedience. That's what he's saying here. To call them to obedience to the gospel. We often think of the gospel as calling people to belief. But Paul often spoke of the gospel as calling people to obedience. In fact, um, He would say in 2 Thessalonians 1 that in flaming fire, God will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul spoke about the gospel as something that needs to be obeyed. He says even here in Romans 10, later on, he'll say there are certain ones who have not all obeyed the gospel. For the Lord says, for Isaiah says, excuse me, Lord, who has believed what we, what's been heard from us? In other words, in that same verse, he speaks about the gospel being believed and the gospel being obeyed. Because for Paul, the preaching of the gospel is a call to a response of obedience. In other words, if you, return, if you reject the gospel, if you turn away from the gospel, you are disobeying and you are therefore culpable for that act of disobedience. Because for Paul, he didn't separate belief from faith. He didn't separate believing from obeying. I'm sorry, he didn't separate belief from obedience is what I meant to say first go around. He didn't separate these two because for him, faith was the first act of obedience. 
And it was the first step in a life of obedience. Believing, then for the Apostle Paul, to believe is to be characterized by faith. That's why when you come to Romans chapter 6, he speaks about us as Christians being characterized by ongoing disobedience to the demands of sin. And ongoing obedience to God. He'll tell us in Romans 6, if you are a believer, the pattern of your life is you will disobey sin. And you will obey God. Because this is the way Paul thought about faith. We have, in our day, separated those two out as if somehow you can go to someone and call them to accept some sort of fact about Christ or about the gospel, but not then call them to obedience to him. Listen, that is totally contrary to what the New Testament gospel is all about. It's contrary to what Paul preached. It's contrary even to what Christ called us to preach, right? Matthew 28, what is the gospel? It is to go into all the nations and do what? Make disciples. And not just make disciples, he says, teach them to obey all that I commanded you. This is the preaching of the gospel. It's not a call to simply believe something in the sense of accepting some facts. It is the call from from the very first beginning, the very first act of obedience, which is faith and response to the gospel. It is a call to a life of obedience. And so Paul says, this is the purpose of the gospel. This is what the grace is in my life. The grace in my life and the grace in the other apostles' life, the grace in your life is that we have the privilege, we have the opportunity to represent God, to go out there and call all nations to this task, to call all nations to obedience. Fourthly, Paul adds weightiness to what he's saying here by addressing the scope of the gospel. Disobedience of faith is intended among all the nations. That's what he says at the end of verse 5. And not only that, he says in verse 6, it includes even you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Simply put, it's not for Jews only. It's not just for those under the law. As Paul will emphasize again and again and again in this book, it equally encompasses all people. Because all people, Jew or Gentile, are equally under God's judgment They are equally facing God's wrath, and they all equally need a Savior. And he's writing to them, and he's telling them, if you're in the audience of this letter, if you're in the context of that first church, or he would say to you here today, if you are here, you are equally in need of a Savior. It doesn't matter if you are brought up in the church, brought up outside of the church. It doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you follow the law or don't follow the law. It doesn't matter. You, along with everyone else, equally face the wrath of God because you equally stand to face judgment, every single person. And so there's a comprehensiveness to this gospel, which makes it compelling To every person who might hear it. You need to listen. You need to listen. To what's said in here. Because no matter where you come from. It applies to you. And it addresses one of your greatest needs. Very quickly. Let's add the 
the last one, not only the designation that Paul has for himself, not only the validation of his gospel, but his affirmation of the church. He doesn't just blankly name the recipients. No, these, he says in verse 7, are all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. This, again, a threefold emphasis. It is comprehensive. It's all those who are in Rome. He will say it again and again and again, this comprehensive nature. Even down in verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Down in verse 14, he'll say, look, I, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. This gospel that I preach, it is for everyone. It is comprehensive. Secondly, Paul's greeting is brotherly in the sense that he acknowledges that all those to whom he writes, if they are in Christ Jesus, they are loved by God and they are called to be saints or called saints, we would even say. Both of those designations would be questioned by some people at this point. They would question some of Paul's readers. They would question if God does indeed love all believers the same. They would question if God does indeed love Gentiles the same as he loves Jews. They would question if God does indeed Love those who disregard the law as much as those who strictly adhere to it. And also they would question whether you could properly call such people saints. Could you properly call them holy or holy ones? Could you properly call all people holy ones and specifically set apart for God if they do not keep the law? Could you call them holy ones and equally set apart if they're not Jews? Are all people equally set apart for God? And there are people who would, who would read Paul's letter and they would have those questions in their mind. And Paul is sounding the alarm. No, I'm writing and when I'm writing, I'm writing to everyone in Rome. And everyone in Rome is loved by God and everyone in Rome is holy. Whether you're Jew or Gentile. And Paul will seek to answer all those questions throughout his letter. Whatever your level of adherence to the law, you are beloved by God and you are holy. And then thirdly, he gives them that unique greeting, grace and peace from God. Which Paul had, defo- had, excuse me, had transformed into this uniquely, distinctively Christian form. He uses it in all of his letters. Every indication is that the church quickly picked up on it. Uh, They departed from the conventional terminology of their of their letters of the day. They departed from in their day and what would be in our day sort of ending their letters by sincerely or respectfully or whatever it might be. And they inserted the unconventional grace and peace as their distinctively Christian mark. Trying to capture the highest wishes that you could give. To anyone. To be recipients of God's unmerited favor. And therefore to be recipients of his peace. This is Paul's statement of love and affection for them. And it adds to his plea. It adds to his appeal for them to listen carefully to what he has to say. Partly because of the distinct designation given to him by God. He is an apostle. He has been set apart by God. 
partly because of the truth of his gospel, which was validated in the Old Testament and emphasized by the resurrection. And partly because of his love and affection for them. That this is a gospel that Paul eagerly wants every person to deeply consider. Well, it should be a great study for us as we move forward and have the apostle unfold all of these things in rich, rich ways for all of us. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for your kindness and your grace to us. Indeed, we have inherited your favor, not because of anything we've done, certainly not because we have strictly adhered to your laws, certainly not because we have been born in the right nation, the right family, or anything. We're recipients because you bestowed favor on us, because someone obeyed the call to sound forth the call for obedience of faith. And we heard and we responded by your grace. Help us then, Lord, to live in the constant light of the great privilege it is for us to be fellow workers, ministers of this gospel to all mankind. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.